calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority or power to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the weaknesses of living in an industrial And technological society like our own is that we miss out on so much that God built into the very fabric of the world he created that would serve as lessons of spiritual truths. Uh, Most of us, if we're honest, we don't study enough what the Puritans used to say, the book of nature. Um, There are two books. There's the book of scripture and there's the book of nature, and God is revealing himself and, and he is using the things in the created world to teach us things about himself. One of the benefits of living in an agrarian society, which most of the world lived in from creation until 150, 200 years ago, was that they understood the metaphors and the analogies of the created world. Jesus himself understood them well. He, he took in what was around him, he processed what he saw, and he brought those things to bear in teaching those around him who would have seen those same things. And we know this because Jesus told many parables. Parables were oftentimes these heavenly mysteries that Jesus cloaked under the figure of earthly realities and things around us. And I noted at the very outset of our sermon series on the fourth gospel that one of the unique features of John's gospel is that there really are no parables in it. Um, 
except perhaps what we find here in John chapter 10. This has been um, argued that this is the only parable that Jesus tells in John's gospel. And it sits right at the halfway point in this gospel. It, it really forms almost the epicenter of John's gospel, and, and it serves to teach us uh, something about the Lord Jesus that maybe we don't think about enough. I was uh, thinking about uh, the words to that hymn, that line in that hymn by Isaac Watts, um, Jesus, my shepherd, brother, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring. There are all these names in Scripture for the Lord Jesus. There are there, there is a catalog of names and descriptions that help us understand who the Savior is. And, and one of the chief ways that the Bible wants us to think about the Lord Jesus is that he is the good shepherd. In fact, so central is that theme in the Bible that if you go from Genesis to Revelation, you find the shepherd motif everywhere. It's very interesting. It was one of the first occupation in human history. Abel, the younger brother of Cain, was a shepherd. Isn't that interesting? He was, remember, martyred because he was righteous and his brother was evil. And he was a type of the Lord Jesus, wasn't he? Hated and envied by his brothers and killed for being righteous. Abel serves at the beginning of human history to, to prefigure as a type of Christ who the Redeemer was going to be and something that he was going to do. And so it's fitting that the first type of Christ among all those godly saints that God put aside was Abel and that he was a shepherd. And then you find out later as you go through Genesis that the patriarchs were shepherds. And remember, Joseph is having to tell them that they're going to have to go dwell in the separate land. And, and there's a little phrase that shepherds were despised by the Egyptians. And then, of course, you know it well, the, the greatest type of Christ in the Old Testament was David, and he was a shepherd. And, and he wrote that great psalm, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. How many believers have been deeply comforted by the truths of Psalm 23? And then you find the shepherding theme and motif developing, and, and in an unusual twist, the Lord is bringing indictments against the false prophets through the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, and, and he, is, he is calling them evil shepherds. He's noting that they have failed to be the shepherds that the people needed so desperately. And, and then the Lord promises in Ezekiel 34, he says, I'm going to send you David. Well, David has been dead. He's going to send us Christ under the name of David, and, and I'm going to send you David, and he is going to stand and shepherd my flock. There's going to be one flock. There's going to be one shepherd, Ezekiel says. And I have no doubt that Jesus is picking up on Ezekiel 34 here in John 10, and the reason is this. I've already noted that this passage is connected to what went before. And what went before was the hatefulness and the cruelty of the religious leaders in Israel toward the man born blind who had just been healed by Jesus. Remember, we said this last week, that instead of rejoicing that the man had had his eyes open, instead of rejoicing in what 
what the Lord Jesus had done for this man and taking note of him, instead of seeing their own need to have their eyes open, they raged against Christ and they sought to destroy him. And so it's fitting in that context that the Lord Jesus would say, I'm the good shepherd, I am the door, and essentially to the religious leaders in Israel, you are hirelings, you are false shepherds, and you have no place among my sheep. Now, there are two metaphors that Jesus uses in this chapter. The first is the third of the I am sayings. Jesus says, I am the door. And I'm going to argue this morning that's the hardest one to understand what he's saying there. He says, I am the door to the sheepfold. And then the, the second metaphor that he uses is that he is the good shepherd. It is the fourth of the I am sayings. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. And I want us to consider just those two divisions this morning as we look at this passage. You'll note verses 1 through 10 is the first figure that Jesus uses about the door. And then verses 11 through the end of the section is the Good Shepherd Discourse. We'll notice that he turns to these religious leaders and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Now, Jesus is addressing the religious leaders in Israel. And and to understand the significance of what he's going to say to them, keep in mind that in Christ's day, the entire, the entire hierarchy of leadership in Israel was corrupt. All of the Sadducees, all of the Pharisees, all of the scribes, all of the chief priests. The entire, the entire structure of spiritual leadership in Israel was completely and entirely defunct. None of these people cared for the people of God. None of them were faithful to the God of Israel. All of them paraded themselves. All of them wanted reputation. Uh, Jesus will tell us elsewhere they were lovers of money. And they perverted the truth of God's word. And they essentially, they essentially perverted the very truth of Christ himself. At the very epicenter of what was wrong with the leaders in Israel's day is that they hated the truth about Jesus. Um, You know, John Calvin, this is very, very helpful. Uh, John Calvin said this. I want you to listen carefully. He said, No plague is more destructive to the church than when wolves ravage under the garb of shepherds. We must, therefore, above all things, guard against being deceived by pretended shepherds if we do not choose of our own accord to expose ourselves to wolves and thieves. Calvin says the name the church is highly honorable and justly so, but the greater the reverence it deserves, so much the more careful and attentive ought we to be in marking the distinction between true and false doctrine. Everything Jesus is saying here is warning his people, warning us this morning, to watch out for false teachers, false prophets, to watch out for wolves, to watch out for false doctrine. You know, by the way, this is so unpopular in our day. I was reading this week um, 
a short article by B.B. Warfield, and, and I think the name of it was The Dogmatic Spirit. And he wrote it in the late 1800s, and he talked about how the dogmatic spirit is so irritating to men. And I thought, man, it was 127 years ago. What would Warfield think today? I mean, not a day goes by that I don't read something online of some minister, even, even in denominations like our own, suggesting that, well, we want doctrine, but not too much. We don't want too much doctrine. We don't, we don't need to be the gatekeepers of orthodoxy. Um, clearly, they've never read John 10 or have forgotten what it said, because um, from here on throughout the rest of the New Testament, so much of God's revelation is warning about false doctrine because false doctrine will lead people to hell. Um, you know, somebody said once, false teaching is like heroin. Those who do it don't know that they're doing themselves harm. Really helpful sentiment. Um, ideas have consequences. Truth matters. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not just so we can walk around and, and tell everybody how much we know. Um, sound doctrine is the very essence of the soul of the life of faith. Uh, Martin Luther famously said this, doctrine is heaven. Listen carefully. Doctrine is heaven. Life is earth. In life there is sin, error, discord, labor, sorrow. He said there, love must not listen but overlook. He said, but doctrine is a far different matter. It is holy, pure, undefiled, heavenly, divine. Whoever desires to pervert that to him must be shown neither love nor mercy. Those are hard words. I want to ask you this morning before we look at this more clearly, do you believe that? That we are to love sound doctrine and we are to be careful and guarded against any perversions of the truth of God's word. And that needs to be heralded from every pulpit in this land, because I'm telling you, people are being told constantly, don't go in so hard on doctrine. Now, Jesus is here um, bringing an indictment against those false teachers. Notice he says that they haven't entered by the door. That means they, they've made themselves religious leaders. He has not made them religious leaders. What does he mean when he says, I am the door? He's saying, I am the way to true ministry. And unless someone comes through me and the doctrine about me, he's come in another way and he's a thief and he's a robber and he doesn't care for the sheep. Don't miss that. So when Jesus says, I am the door, he is saying any true shepherds who come in among the fold of God and who, who minister among the people of God, unless they come in through Christ and the truth about him, they are wolves and they are thieves. And they have climbed in some other way. Now, that, that should give us pause when we think about voices that we listen to in culture and wherever they may be, whether they're books or the internet or sermons or lectures or in pulpits, we should always be asking, does this man, has this man entered through the door who is Christ, or is what he's telling me something else, even if it sounds good on a surface level? There are many, many, many people 
who can teach and preach and write about things in very skillful ways, but if they're not giving you the Lord Jesus, they have come in another way, and they are not good shepherds. Now, here's the interesting thing. In this figure, Jesus actually gives us some comfort and some hope. Notice he says, he says, um, notice verse 5, the sheep, they follow the voice of the good shepherd, a stranger they will not follow. That's good news. Um, There are only two kinds of people in the world, and sometimes um, people in the world will mock Christians and they'll say, you know, Christians are just sheep. Yes, yes, and it's better to be a sheep than a goat. You can read Matthew 25 for yourself and find that out. There are sheep and there are goats. And Jesus says sheep will not listen to the voice of a stranger. Um, I've heard stories about shepherds. By the way, I know nothing about shepherding, so I'm not even going to pretend. I literally know nothing about shepherding except stories I've heard. I mean, I think I've seen sheep like once or twice up close and personal. But, but I've heard stories that in, in the highlands of Scotland that, that a shepherd can call a, a, a sheep that was under his care as a lamb and has, been, uh, has grown up and has not been under his care the whole time, and he can call that sheep by name, that that sheep knew his voice as a lamb, and that as a grown sheep, that sheep will come to him. Isn't that interesting, the intimate connection between the sheep And the shepherd, they hear his voice. They don't follow the voice of strangers. God so ordered the natural world that that would occur, that we would understand spiritually if we are sheep, we will hear the voice of Christ. We will hear the voice of those who are proclaiming Christ, and we will follow Christ. Um, One of the most important verses in the New Testament that captures the essence of a true shepherd is what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I believe, chapter 4. He says, we do not preach ourselves. Lots of men preach themselves, y'all. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the the Lord and ourselves bondservants for Christ. That's, That's the voice of a good shepherd. A good shepherd is pointing to the good shepherd, and he has come through the door. He has, he has come to know Christ. He has been sent by Christ. And his singular commitment is to hold forth the doctrine of Christ. Now, what's interesting is that the doctrine of Christ, the exclusivity of Jesus, that, that no one comes to the Father except through him, that he is the door, that that is the single thing that false teachers hate the most. They will talk about inclusion all day long. Let's include everybody. Inclusion so loving and good and beautiful. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That the doctrine of the person and the work of Christ, his atoning sacrifice on the cross, his, his active obedience, the righteousness that he secures for his people, that we are saved by faith alone in him, is, is the most beautiful doctrine It is the door, and yet it is the thing that the religious leaders in Jesus' day hated the most. Um, 
Listen to this. I love this. John Calvin. Christ testifies that all the doctrines by which the world has been led away from him are so many deadly plagues because apart from him, there is nothing but destruction and horrible confusion. Isn't that interesting? The doctrine by which the world is led away from Christ is a deadly plague, he says, because apart from him there is nothing but destruction and horrible confusion. I want to ask you this morning, do you believe that? Um, There are many churches that just want to entertain people because they can pack people in um, through methods and techniques. And, and, you know, they don't really care about those people. Let me, let me be the first one to break this to you, if, if you've not ever heard this. In churches where you have ministers who are just trying to uh, help with the itching ears of people and that pack the people in, they're just trying to make people another fish in their aquarium. They don't really care about the sheep. Um, True shepherds care about the flock. Notice what Jesus says. He says, um, in verse 7, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. They were only simply taking for themselves. They were only, they were only in ministry for themselves, for their platform, for their money, for their fame, for their reputation. There, there are a thousand different reasons why people can go into ministry for the wrong reason. Um, And Jesus says, all who came, and it should be translated probably instead of me, in the place of me, acting as if they were the Lord of consciences, were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Listen, think about the stark contrast. False teachers may sound wonderful. They may look wonderful. They may be wearing really expensive sneakers. And you may be like, wow, that guy's kind of cool. But if he is not leading you to Jesus and the foot of the cross, if he is not bringing you to the good shepherd, then he is out to steal and kill and destroy. And you may say, that's harsh. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. And I'm going to listen to this because it's true. Um, You know, the religious leaders in Israel, they didn't come out and tell the people, here's our motives. We love money. We want you to worship us. And we want all the power and control. They didn't say that. In fact, Jesus had to tell us that was what was going on in their hearts. Um, False teachers can look and sound very convincing. In fact, so much so that the better part of the church in Jesus' day here in Israel followed after them. They, they allowed their consciences to be bound by them. They, they put themselves under the weight of their legal teaching, and, and they, they were content to, to have the kingdom sealed off from them. Remember when Jesus rails against the Pharisees in Matthew 23, and he brings those seven woes against them. And and ultimately, what is the great problem? The great problem is that they are keeping heaven shut from people. They are keeping life from people. And notice the contrast. Jesus says, I am the door. 
Whoever enters by me will go in and out and find pasture, will be saved and find pasture. And then notice he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. When you come to Christ, you get abundant life. You get spiritual life. You, you get eternal life. You get it now and forever. Um, and here Jesus is really still testifying about true shepherds um, and how they are distinguished. Well, notice, secondly, he is going to give that figure that he is the good shepherd. He says this on three occasions between verse 11 and verse 21. And notice that Jesus says very plainly in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, there are only three places in the New Testament where Jesus explains the significance of his death. Now, the apostles are going to explain it everywhere. But Jesus, on only three occasions, and this is one of them, explains the nature of his death. He says, I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for in the place of, on behalf of, the sheep. So what does a good shepherd do? He lays down his life for the sheep. He cares more about the safety, protection, and provision of his sheep than he does about his own well-being. And Jesus here is teaching that he came to lay down his life as an atoning sacrifice. This is very powerful. This is why we distinguish between the sheep and the goats. Jesus will later say, you're not of my sheep. That's why you don't hear my voice. Here he says, I lay down my life for my sheep. He's going to put himself on the cross in their place. Um, Notice verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority or power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. Now, this is interesting. Um, Jesus is essentially talking about risking his own safety for the spiritual good of his people. One writer, Timothy Laniac, put it this way, risking one's life was occasionally necessary as an expression of protection. However, deliberately dying for one's flock pushes the metaphor beyond its limits. The contrast between Jesus and others, the thieves, the robbers, the hirelings, the wolves, is drawn sharply. Life for the predator entails death for the flock. Listen carefully. Life for the predator entails death for the flock. They come to steal and kill and destroy. But Laniac says, life for the flock requires death for the shepherd. Isn't that interesting? Now, if you haven't already had your mind go here, Jesus is essentially saying that I, as the good shepherd, am going to become the sacrificial lamb. Isn't that interesting? That the shepherd becomes the sacrificial lamb for the sheep. He becomes the substitute for his people. Um... You know, it's interesting, John picks up on the shepherding theme in the book of Revelation, and when he talks about believers 
in their relationship to Christ. He says they follow the lamb wherever he goes. Isn't that beautiful? They follow the lamb wherever he goes. Now, shouldn't it be they follow the shepherd wherever he goes? Well, the shepherd has become the lamb. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And believers follow the lamb wherever he goes. Who needs a lamb? Sinners. Who needed a sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament? Sinners did. Who follows Christ wherever he goes? Sheep who realize they're sinners and that he's a savior. Now, I want you to notice something. Um, As the good shepherd, Jesus owns the sheep. Um, They are his. The father has given the sheep to him in eternity. That's why he does what he does for us, because he owns the sheep. He cares for the sheep, and he's going to lay down his life for the sheep. Isn't that interesting? He owns us. He cares for us. He lays down his life for us. That's what makes him the good shepherd. In the Greek, by the way, and it's somewhat inconsequential, but in the Greek it's actually, I am the shepherd, the good one. What is Jesus highlighting here? What makes Jesus the good shepherd? Here's what makes him the good shepherd. In his goodness, in his goodness, the eternal Christ, the the eternal God, who is infinite in goodness, does the greatest thing for the sheep. He dies for sinners like us. He lays down his life to give us life. That's amazing. What makes him the good shepherd? And by the way, there's only really one good shepherd. I mean, Peter will speak of himself as an under-shepherd, and and faithful ministers certainly are under-shepherds, but there's only one shepherd who is the good one, and that is Christ. Now, I want you to notice something else, though. We've kind of touched on what makes Jesus the good shepherd. Um, There's an intimate knowledge. Notice verse 14, I know my own, and my own know me. That's, That's the heart of the relationship between believers and Jesus is that there's an intimate knowledge. They don't just know about him, they know him. They know his voice. They flee from other voices. They, they long to be in fellowship with him. Um, they want to follow him closely where he goes. But I want you to see something else that Jesus intimates in this passage. Notice verse 17 and 18 again. Jesus talks about a voluntary laying down of his life. Now, I think he does this in part because he wants his disciples not to be surprised when he is nailed to the tree. He doesn't want them to think that this came on him unexpectedly. He wants them to understand that what he is doing, he is going to do from himself. And, and this is remarkable, he is going to do it in accord with a command that the Father gave him in eternity. This is not something he's devising right there and then. He's not thinking up ways to convince his people that he's a good shepherd. He has come from God and in the eternal council, notice this, notice he says, no one takes it from me, my life, verse 18, I lay it down of my own accord. 
I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it again. This command I have received from my father. Now, none of us are very good at keeping God's commands. We've already confessed our sins. We know that what it means to be a Christian is that we admit that we are full of iniquity. Um, Job will say at one place, man, man commits iniquity like a fish drinks water. How's that for imagery? <laughs> pervasive by nature. Um, and yet, and yet notice that Jesus says, not only did he come to do what brought pleasure to his father, but that Jesus actually obeyed the hardest command that any man was ever given. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Look again at verse 18. God the Father commanded the Son in the councils of eternity. He said, my son, you will lay down your life willingly, and you will take it again. And the Son in the councils of eternity, one in essence with his Father as God, and yet as the Son said, my father, I will lay down my life willingly and I will take it again. They concurred in the council of eternity. And then in time, Jesus carries out the most difficult command that any man had ever been given. Listen to this. Jonathan Edwards said, never was there such an instance of obedience in man or angel as this. Though he that obeyed was at the same time supreme Lord of both angels and men. The Lord of angels and men obeyed as God in the flesh the hardest command that anyone had ever been given to lay down his life willingly and to take it again for you and me. That's awesome. That is absolutely amazing. If that, if that doesn't astonish us, there's something deeply wrong in our souls. He willingly laid it down. Think about this. How much power, I know you can't answer this question because I can't, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How much power does it take to raise somebody from the dead? I don't know, a whole lot of power. How much power does it take to raise yourself from the dead? Wow. Jesus says, I have power to lay down my life and I have power to take it again. Now, when the scriptures speak about the resurrection of Christ, they, they attribute it to God the Father, that the Father raised him from the dead. And other times they attribute it to the Spirit raising Christ from the dead in, in Romans chapter 8. But here, in a unique sense, Jesus says, I, just like my Father and just like the Spirit, one God, have power to take my life again. He was fully man and he really and truly died in our place and for our sins. He was really and truly buried and lay in the grave dead, and he raised himself from the dead. That's what makes him the good shepherd. If you can do that, you get to tell people, I'm the good shepherd. And if you can do that, you get to warn people about false shepherds. Now, I know this congregation loves doctrine. I know that. Um, but I do, I do fear that in our day, we, we, have, um, we have sort of allowed ourselves to, to have a growing aversion to watching out for false doctrine. Don't let that happen. Um, the more we stay in the Word, 
the more we sit at the feet of Jesus, the more we keep our eyes fixed on Christ crucified, risen, and reigning, the more discerning we should be in everything else that's being taught, no matter who it comes from, starting with me. I mean, the great Apostle Paul actually said to the church in Galatia, even if we or an angel from heaven preach another gospel to you, let him be anathema. So, so no matter who it is, no matter where it comes from, and by the way, there is so much false teaching. I remember R.C. Sproul saying once, there's so much false teaching in the world, you couldn't haul it all out with a dump truck. There is so much false teaching. And, and by the way, it happens most of all in churches because that's where the thief comes to kill and steal and destroy. I want to leave you with just two thoughts um, this morning. One is, I want to ask you, um, when you when you hear things taught, are you processing it through the fact that Christ is the door, and if it's not about him, and, and it's seeking to bind your conscience, or telling you this is what you need to be invested in, or this is what it is to be spiritual, if that if that's not what you're doing, then I would, I would encourage you to do that. If, if that is what you're doing, I'd encourage you to keep doing that. Christ is the door. Whoever enters by him is a true shepherd, and the sheep hear their voice, and they follow them. Whoever enters by him will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And then secondly, I want to encourage you this morning, as you think about the Lord Jesus I want to encourage all of us to be thinking about him as the shepherd of our souls. That's one of the most beautiful ways the New Testament describes the experience of somebody coming to Christ and being reconciled to God. Peter will actually say, you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So what I need more than anything, is I need a shepherd for my sinful soul, because left to myself, I will go wayward every time. Remember, Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone to his own way. David says at the end of Psalm 119, he says, after professing to love God's word in 175 verses, the last verse he says, seek your servant because I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Left to ourselves, we go astray, but we have a good shepherd, and he's already laid down his life for us. He's already taken it up for us, and he is committed to shepherding us to glory. John will end in the book of Revelation. It's, it's toward the end of the Bible, and he'll talk about the Lamb shepherding his people by rivers of living water for all eternity. Think about that. He's going to shepherd our souls in glory. Um, That's why thinking about Jesus as the good shepherd is so central to our Christian life and to the message of Scripture. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you have given us such a shepherd in the Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the good shepherd, that you have laid down your life for us, that you have taken it again. We also thank you that you give us 
under shepherds who point to you. We do pray that you would make us a people who hear your voice and who listen to you and who follow you wherever you go. We pray that you would make us to see afresh this morning that as the good shepherd, you have become the lamb that was slain. You have sacrificed yourself for us. We pray that we would know that not just in word, but in the very depths of our souls and in our experience. We pray that you would cause us to grow in our knowledge of you, even as you know us. We pray that you would do for us what a good shepherd alone can do for the souls of your sheep. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as